Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studio Stories. Let me ask you all a question. Do you have OCD or know someone who has OCD and unsure of what the symptoms are? Do you know someone that just rehashes things over and over and over in their heads or somebody who has a stereotypical traits of keeping things aligned or just has a ritual of doing something over and over? Well, my next guest, Jason Adam, is just somebody just like that. He has OCD and he was diagnosed late in life. So stay tuned for a very interesting episode. We get to talk to him about his OCD and how he deals with it. And we t- and then we get to know him a little bit more personally. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. Hello and welcome to Inside the Asperger Studios Presents Stories. Today I'm joined with Jason, right? That's right, Jason Adams. How you doing, Jason Adams. He is, he was diagnosed late with OCD and he's also got kids of his own. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, uh, as you said, I'm a dad of, uh, of twin boys and, um, I, uh, the, I have, you know, kind of a, a story around that, that I, uh, you know, that I, that I'm really keen to share with people. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from Canada. I live in Ontario and I, uh, I, around the same time that my boys were born, I, I had a, a major spike in, in symptoms. And at the time I didn't know them as OCD or anything like that, but, uh, um, before long, it became pretty clear that my mental health was on the decline and being a new dad, it was important to do something about that. So I uh, went and found a good therapist, started the whole therapeutic process. And a couple of years later, you know, my boys are uh, a thriving little twinado. That's what we call them. And uh, um, and they're happy and healthy and we're all happy and healthy at home and, and things are good. Yeah. So uh, I just live and keep busy here in Southern Ontario and try to keep in shape or at least not falling too far out of shape. And uh you know, just trying to kind of keep happy and start to get busy as the world opens uh, opens up a little bit more. All right. So what happened when you were diagnosed? I mean, did a light just spark in your head and like, oh, my God, this explains why I this way? You know, what's funny is that when so my first couple of sessions, I went and essentially just just poured everything out to uh, this therapist that I was working with, this psychologist. And I just said, I don't know what this is. All I know is that something's wrong. I feel like I'm, I don't know if I'm sick, cursed, whatever, just, I I don't know. (laughs) Something's up. And, uh, and I described the symptoms, which at that time was a lot of intrusive thoughts that didn't seem rational and I, I couldn't make them go away. And what I was describing was obsessions and compulsions but uh, I still remember because the therapist just calmly nodded, took out a post-it note, wrote a book title and said, go buy this and come back in a week and we're going to talk more. And it was the book Overcoming OCD by uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz. And so 
once I started reading through that book, it has a, a big list of descriptors for OCD and categories of obsessions and different things like that. And I can still remember writing in the margins like, yes, in big capital letters and like, that's me. I do that, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, so that was a really big kind of just, you know, a, a really big revelation of sorts. But I had no idea what it was until then. All I knew was that I was having thoughts going through my head that that, that wouldn't go away and that weren't pleasant. It would just be thoughts of my boys coming to harm in like far off disaster scenarios, thoughts about them becoming contaminated, wondering whether I just had strong parental instincts or I was anxious, you know, losing sleep over all these things, uh, worrying if I did sleep sacks up the right way when they, when I put them down to nap and, you know, just all, all sorts of different things. Um, and so, yeah, in, in, in looking back now, like once I read those descriptors, I can look back at various points in my life and see sort of seeds and symptoms of OCD kind of going, wow, that's actually what that was back then. Okay. It seemed normal at the time. And sometimes the symptoms weren't as severe, but they really came to a head when my boys were born and, you know, I was losing sleep and uh, had a lot bigger responsibilities and concerns than just myself. So that's really how that all came around into, into center focus. It must be weird to find out that you have OCD. I mean, like you must have like small, small little things like lining things up. Things must be straight. You you know what? It's funny. I would say those are, those are definitely some of the more well-known, some of the more popular, I would even say stereotypical symptoms of OCD. Interestingly, I'm not so much uh, when it comes to to symmetry and to uh, to, to to balance. I, I would say so. Mine were much more to do with um, mine were much more centered around preventing harm. Uh, that mm. was a big one, uh, and everything from sort of physical harm. One that I would do is I would I would suffer from obsessions often about whether I hit somebody with my car on the drive home and didn't know it. So I would sometimes drive okay. my commute once or twice just to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, I had a lot of neutralizing rituals that I did where if I was, I I don't know, walking into a shopping mall and I opened the door and as I walked through the door, I get an intrusive thought about something. So either a really hard judgmental thought or a thought of something bad happening to someone I care about, I would walk out the door, force myself not to have the thought and walk back through the door. Right. Just to to say like, okay, I've kind of set the cosmic energies back into line here. Right. Um, And then with my boys, it was much more centered around contamination. So during a diaper change, Mm -hmm. if they, you know, if, if I felt they weren't clean enough after cleaning them up, I would be super worried that one of them was going to get hepatitis A or something like that. And of course, every parent worries about their child getting sick. But the difference for me was like the severity of the reaction. I would stress about it all night. I would lose sleep over it. I would go back and do an extra cleaning for them when I really didn't have to, all those types of things. And once it started affecting my family like that, that's where I was like, okay, this can't continue. So is it weird to find out you have OCD? It is strange. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's very cathartic. Like it's... There, there's a name for what's going on with you. It's It's been studied. It's documented. There are people who have found their way through it. There are medical experts who research it and spend their whole lives figuring out ways to help. So even, you know, it, it's a combination of like, wow, this is a part of me now that I never thought it would be. But at the same time, it's like, there's actually finally answers for this thing that has been confusing me for a long time. So it's it's a bit of both. 
So it's like that. It's, I think that's like that even in the ASD and the ADHD world is when you all these little nuances that we do and have and stuff. And once we get it explained to us, it's sort of like it opens up a whole new world to you of, okay, this is why I do what I do. This explains everything to me. Now there is a name to what I have. Now I need to wonder how to work with it and how to understand it and how to explain it to everybody. I think so. And I, I, I completely agree with you. And the other thing that I found was just your, your self-image and your self-esteem. It, it really changes when, when you can explain what's going on, because the other thing that that does is, well, first of all, it normalizes it because you realize like I haven't been chosen randomly, you know, picked out of the hat of the universe <laughs> to have this, unexplainable problem. It's like, actually, I have this kind of aspect of human existence that quite a few other people do. And now I get to choose how I want to respond to it. And that's one thing that for me, just knowing a that I had an explanation, but also that like, okay, now I can actually see a path for what I want to do about this and how I can turn it into a good thing and how I can manage it. And once you realize you can do that, it's, it's empowering too. Like you realize like, okay, I can regulate this. I can have some yeah. kind of control over it. And that's an amazing feeling. And the other thing is like, just the, the, the level of uh, empathy. I mean, like I'm a, I'm a teacher by profession and, um, and I work with lots and lots of kids on the spectrum and lots and lots of kids mm -hmm. with ADHD. It's some of my favorite work. I'm actually a special education teacher oh, and, good. and I teach a lot about empathy and different perspectives. We do a lot of um, just a lot of different reading and discussions and interviews and all kinds of things. Um, so I've always been aware of it that way i've always been aware of just mental health and i've seen the world in different ways but now that i actually also have my own world defined in a different way and i've done so much introspection on it for the last couple of years from getting a diagnosis it's it's, it's added an extra layer to that and it's something where i have more self-knowledge and a willingness to talk to others to kind of help them through that and that's 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 been huge and that's something i feel really good about <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you find out more about yourself, it's it's eye opening into the fact that now you have this whole other world you need to explore to understand who you are, what you are. I mean, I never realized I had OCD. I mean, some of the things you you're talking about explain some of the things like I'll talk with somebody or have a show or do something like like I went for my master's and then when I came back from it, it's like. I could have done things differently and I keep rehashing it over and over in my head. And I'm thinking, is this normal? Yeah. I could have done this. I could have done this. And my mom is like, you can't do that. You can't live in your past. Yeah. And it drives yeah. me nuts. I'll sit there and rehash things in my head over and over until, until the sun comes up and it's like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and, and, and one thing that people, don't always understand about OCD is that um, compulsions can be mental, mm -hmm. right? Compulsions can be, can be in your head. Like what you're talking about there. Um, it's a combination of kind of, yeah, checking rituals and flashbacks. And, um, and that is, you know, that, that, that constant revisiting it's, it, it's a way of trying to find relief for that anxiety that something might be wrong, right? And there's some really cool research out there that talks about 
basically in some people with OCD, the way the brain works is that like, say, for example, you're cooking chicken and you get some raw chicken juice on the counter. There's a part of your brain that's going to say there's chicken juice on the counter that could cause, that could make bacteria grow. You should clean that up. Then there's another part of your brain that's going to like just prompt you to actually act and get some cleaner and clean it up. Um and then there's another part of your brain that's going to say, okay, you were nervous about the chicken juice. Now the chicken juice is gone. Threat is gone. You don't need to worry anymore. Well, one thing that I learned is that for a lot of us, that part of the brain that signals the hazard just kind of goes on repeat, 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 mm. repeat, repeat. So it's like a physiological thing. So when you're saying, you know, when someone says to you, and I've had lots of people say to me, like, you can't think about things this way. It's like... It's, it, it's kind of down to a physiological level. It's like, I don't want to think like this. It just keeps happening, right? Yeah. And, that, and that's part of really the cycle of OCD. You end up having some, some, some major problems in some cases with just being angry at yourself, being angry at your own mind, even feeling a bit depressed about it because you're like, well, I don't have control over this. So what am I going to do about it? You know, feeling trapped like you have to deal with that forever is, is, is a really um, troubling feeling as well. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, such a big supporter of any kind of conversations or therapy that help people understand that more. Cause yeah, I know exactly. I, I don't have enough time to give you a list of examples of uh, the same type of thought process you're talking about. I understand that completely. And uh, there are lots of really helpful exercises and therapies out there to bring that cycle under control. So yeah, I absolutely understand. I mean, one of the best examples I can give you of my OCD is, do you remember back in the day when we used to have the little screen things on your phone that you use a squeegee for to get rid of the air bubbles? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, I am the type of person that if there's one tiny little air bubble, I'll rub it and rub it and rub it and rub it until there's a freaking hole in it. Yeah. And I'll tear it off and say, okay, I destroyed it, throw it away. And like, I don't need it anymore. That's, or if something's out of alignment, if everything's in line and one thing's one alignment off or one thing's not even, it'll drive me bananas. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what, what you're talking about there, and I get this in other areas is uh, like, I call it the, well, it's not just me that calls it that there's lots of people and professionals that do um, is the just not right feeling, right? It's one of those things where like for you, you would look at that air bubble and feel like that. For me, there's been other things I've noticed it. And very odd things for me. Sometimes it was the number of sips that I took from a water fountain. <laughs> uh, sometimes, sometimes it, it was, sometimes it was words of a particular sound or feel that I just felt like I had to use. And if I didn't use them, something just felt off. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, yeah, you have these, you have these compulsions that you do to try and neutralize that just not right feeling. And the problem with that just not right feeling is that first of all, it's like it's so vague. When someone says to you, like, what doesn't feel right about that? And you're going like, I don't know. I just know on a physical level, on a mental level, something's off. Something's wrong. Got to fix this. And it feels really powerful and real. And that's something that it's hard to put into words how how real that feels. And I, I used to do the exact same thing. And I found that, you know, there were some really helpful exercises of, uh, you know, just helping to connect where that thought comes from, what purpose that thought is serving, and then also just really structured ways to gauge whether that type of thought is worth your time, you know, taking kind of a real world objective look at, you know, probabilities of if I don't 
if I take six sips from this water fountain instead of five, what's likely to happen, what's not likely to happen. Um, but even something as simple as just writing out like everything we just said, for example, for me, it was if I take six sips from this water fountain instead of five, something terrible is going to happen. Even just the process of talking that out and writing that out and then reading it a few times day after day just changes the way you relate to those thoughts. Right. And so that you know, again, is something where I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And you're, you know, it's, it's, it's making me kind of flash back to the many, many times that I would write out, just not write feelings like that in the hopes of just getting a bit of space from them and reading them from a more logical observer perspective, rather than just thinking them and keeping them in my head. So um, yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're speaking my language on this, man. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, There are a lot of us who have ASD and ADHD who also have OCD as well. I mean, one of my good friends I've made through the ASD um, community, he's big in, he's a big YouTuber in England who's got ASD, ADHD, OCD, and like me, dyslexic. Yeah. So anyways, Let's oh, no, get on with the questions. Yeah, no, and sorry, I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to cut you off there um, when you were um, giving that description there. But I, you know, and I have to say, actually, that's something um, that I wasn't aware of as much that uh, that OCD affects um, people on the spectrum of people with ADHD, and it it's something. And again, you know, as a teacher, but just also as a person. Um, and 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 by the way, a big part of uh, what I do in my special education roles, I teach um, is is I, I teach a lot about um, just having empathy about um, about something like ADHD but then also understanding what it can be like to manage more than one diagnosis mm-hmm. and how, and how that can present in day-to-day life and how that can be a struggle. And again, it's something where the, just having a bit of personal experience with this type of thing is so valuable. And it also just makes me so admire like just people like you, people like the friend you're talking about yeah. where you take all those struggles and you turn them into something and you turn them into something positive and especially into adulthood, this is something, I mean, I think that's really valuable for, for kids to see and for families to see that there are a lot of positive examples out there of people who manage with these things. So, you know, well done to you and to your friend. <laughs> it is, it's a huge, it's a huge problem because there are people out there who will not look at us and say, you have a, you have ASD you're different than everyone else and or there are those who look at us and just want nothing to do with us Mm -hmm. i mean that's why we call it the invisible disability is because you can't see it like you can like with something like down syndrome or retardation or anything like that it's something that people don't see and don't understand and it still is not understood to this day yeah yeah my uh, you know and and my perspective on that is that yeah i think it's something that is I think hopefully at least certainly like where I am, it, it, it's heading in an encouraging direction, but I think that um, like in the sense of there, there's more awareness, there's more programming and resources available, but, and I talk about this actually in my book quite a bit, which we'll talk about soon. But for me, I really want to see the conversation get into things like we're doing here where mm-hmm. you have people sharing a condition that they have, but also sharing it in terms of like, this is what it looks like 
in my real life. This is how, even though I manage this, I thrive in my real life. This is, these are the types of things. So for example, you know, we all have relationships and uh, you know, we all need to have ways to provide for ourselves and we all do that in different ways. And I think sometimes people struggle to imagine how somebody with a disability or with something like autism or ADHD or OCD, people struggle to imagine how people with those conditions do all the same normal things that we all do. And that to me is the direction that those conversations really need to go. So that's why I'm so glad and appreciative that, you know, we're talking today. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into the questions. Let's do it. Did you grow up? So yeah, I mostly grew up in Southern Ontario, uh, but I also went out to uh, Nova Scotia in Canada for, uh, for four years when I was in university. And I really, uh, uh, Nova Scotia holds a special place in my heart. It's very much uh, kind of a part of who I am. Yeah. All right. What motivates you, inspires you and drives you? Yeah. So the feeling of learning and getting better at something is a huge drive for me. Like I just, I love the fact that you can look back and see things that you do differently or things that you wanted to change and then things that you did change. So noticing progress and noticing improvements in things in my life, whether it's relationships or work or a particular skill. Um, and, you know, and to that same end, I really admire and inspire people who, who do that. And especially people who, who do that in their own way. All right. What's the best compliment you've ever gotten? That's a hard one. I, I think just anyone saying they've noticed or appreciated something that I've really worked hard at and that I'm proud of, whether that's just a good conversation where somebody says they're really appreciative of someone listening or um, somebody just noticing, you know, some work that I've done and commented on kind of a on a, on a personal quality that they've that they've noticed. Um, and I would say, you know, kind of anything related to kind of to hard work and to just doing an act of good really. And, and finding out that had a real impact on somebody, anything like that is a huge compliment for me. All right. What's your biggest failure and what did you learn from that experience? <laughs> oh, lots of examples come to mind, but I would say just uh, the failures that I look back on kind of the hardest would be just any personal relationships I've had that have failed or not gone well. So whether that's uh, conflicts between family, which, you know, I don't want to create any wrong impressions. I've got a very healthy, happy family, both like my family and my extended family, but whether it's relationships or friendships and things that have gone wrong there. And what I've learned, you know, in those situations is a little bit more about just my own values, how I want to be treated, how I want to treat others. And, you know, those are the ones that I would say, you know, they may not be the biggest failures in terms of the most catastrophic consequences of my life, but they're definitely the failures that I, that I value the most because they affect the things that I value the most. So All right. I hope that answers that question. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Tell me about three influential people in your life and how they've impacted you. Sure. So my parents would be one for sure. Uh, because for, you know, from them, I, I really take, you know, the importance of having a place to call home. I've done a lot of traveling and living abroad, but I've always had a, a secure home base and a place that I know is always safe. And that's been a big thing. Um, I, uh, I credit a writer named uh, Brad Warner as a big influence. He's uh, a Buddhist monk, a writer, and a punk rock bass player based out of the United States. And uh, he's got this awesome sense of just realism and kind of a healthy skepticism of things and asking questions about all kinds of different issues without being petty or too confrontational. And I really admire that. 
I also credit a few Canadian musicians. Uh, I'm a musician myself, and I really admire people who combine their artistry with just good old fashioned hard work. So uh, Neil Young, uh, the Tragically Hip, anyone from Canada would likely know who I'm talking about with uh, the Tragically Hip. We lost their lead singer, Gord Downey, uh, a little while back, and he was uh, just huge contributor to, to uh, Canadian culture, but also just a really hard worker, genuinely interesting person. So yeah, those would be uh, my three for sure. All right. What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Three things, I would say, uh, being a parent, I'm, I'm the best version of myself around my family and my boys, uh, being in front of an audience just gives me an energy and being outdoors, uh, being outdoors and working outdoors just keeps my head clear and my energy up. All right. Finish the sentence. I'm at my best when... I would go back to those examples I just gave. So either when I'm in a situation where my actions are directly impacting other people, either, you know, as a teacher, entertaining an audience, being with my boys or uh, being in a situation outdoors where I'm doing some some hands on work where I can see the immediate impact. Now, if you could turn back time and talk to your 18 year old self, what would you tell him about where you are now in life? Learn more about yourself and feel better about what you find, but go to a therapist to figure out how to learn more about yourself rather than just trying to do it yourself and not really knowing what you're doing. (laughs) All right. If you can have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Be a tree because it's a symbol of just about everything I value. And I think that roads and road signs could do with a lot more relaxing imagery. All right. What do you think the world will look like in five years from now? Well, I'm hopeful of positive change. Um, I hope it will. uh, I hope it will look a little greener and healthier than it does at the moment. And I'm hoping we as people will have our faces and screens a little bit less. (laughs) All right. What's your favorite? What's your favorite subject in school? Music, English, woodshop, and phys ed. I couldn't pick just one. Sorry. That's no problem. <laughs> Would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Depends on the situation. I, I really am a bit of a fence sitter on that one. I would say more extroverted, though. Uh, it really just depends. But generally speaking, I'm fine with putting myself out there in, in, in most situations. All right. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be and why? I know, and I, and I know you keep saying one thing and I'm terrible at picking just one thing, but I would say, um, you know, being, being a clear thinker and being there for my family, you know, being dedicated to my family, those two things. All right. Now we get to the part where we talk about where you are now in your life. You're yeah. talking about your book. So why don't you tell us a little bit how you got to thinking about writing your book and what's it about? Absolutely. So the book is called OC Dad, Learning to Be a Parent with a Mental Health Disorder. And the story for the book, I mean, I I mentioned earlier that I can look back and see traces of OCD symptoms way earlier in my life, but they really didn't come to a major head until my boys were born. And for a number of reasons, the symptoms spiked. Now, at that time, I was fortunate, again, to go to a therapist who knew all about OCD. And for my generalized OCD symptoms, the ones that weren't focused on family and parenting, the work and books that we had there were absolutely brilliant. Uh, The problem was I couldn't find anything 
that related to being a parent with OCD. There's lots out there about OCD. There are tons of books on how to be a parent. And there are lots of books on managing when a family member has OCD. And those are all fantastic resources. I'm not knocking them at all. But I couldn't find anything that said sort of, here's how you make therapy work, but here's how you make all this work when you're a parent with OCD or a parent mm-hmm. with an anxiety disorder. And after a while, I, you know, I even started just cold emailing and cold calling therapists and psychology professors and asking. And after a while, I just found there wasn't anything out there. So I decided to work through that myself. I, I started looking at all my resources and finding what worked and what I was using for my parenting and family related obsessions and compulsions. And I kept track of those. And then I thought, I can't be the only one managing this kind of situation. I think it's a conversation that other people could benefit from. And so in in January of 2020, I started uh, putting ideas on paper and, you know, fast forward to today and the book is, uh, is available, is available online. And it's also uh, through, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, lots of different sites. You can just Google it. And then my, uh, it's also available on my website, uh, www.theocdad.ca. So that's where I'm at right now. All right. Now we get to the part of the show where we ask some very interesting questions. Yeah. What is your favorite word? <laughs> I love words in general. I would say either stricken or delicious. They, they just feel good to say. I, I love <laughs> words that have just an impact. And I'm also obsessed with all things food. So that's where delicious comes from. All right. What is your least favorite word? Smear or breath. They just sound gross. And I associate them with gross things. So uh, it could be someone's gross breath or just smearing just sounds like a gross word to me. All right. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, and emotionally? I'm always inspired by brilliant dialogue in a book, movie, like movie or TV show, doesn't matter. Uh, There's something about well-crafted conversation, particularly people who can say a lot with a little, and people who understand creative wordplay. Uh, that really, so whether that's song lyrics or a particular TV show, hearing a well-expressed, impactful idea just sparks my brain to want to do the same. All right. What turns you off? Uh, in general, I would say closed-mindedness uh, and just malice. So people doing things with the intent to hurt, with the intent to antagonize, um, that that really, those are the things that I struggle with. We all make mistakes. We all have unpleasant moments. Anytime it's done on purpose, I, I find that really difficult to manage. All right. What is your favorite cuss word? <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. Uh, I, I'm a teacher. I need to set a good example. So uh, I will say that I certainly have my frustrating moments, but I try not to utter them out loud too much. All right. <laughs> What sound or noise do you love? Drums, drum kit. I love the sound of drums. I'm a drummer myself, uh, either in just a groove or an improvise. I'm that guy who's always tapping a drum beat on the dinner table, on my knees, on the bus, whatever. (laughs) What sound or noise do you hate? Traffic and grinding teeth. Both of those are just equally unpleasant for me. What is your favorite color? Orange. What is your least favorite color? Pale green. 
What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I always said if I wasn't going to be a teacher, I'd want to look into uh, the Coast Guard or maybe wilderness search and rescue. I think I'd also be a pretty good lawyer, although I don't have any real evidence to back up that claim. All right. What profession would you not like to do? (laughs) Wedding planner. (laughs) <laughs> too many, too many, uh, too many conversations and small details. At least the kind of small details that I don't like dealing with. <laughs> All right. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? Oh, welcome. <laughs> All right. When you arrive at heaven, who would you like to meet? The the grandparents that I've lost and that I've never met and a few writers and artists that I admire. All right. And finally, what books do you recommend my audience read? Sure. So if if they're reading for mental health, uh, I, uh, particularly anyone with OCD, I would recommend starting with Overcoming OCD by Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz, um, A-B-R-A-M-O-W-I-T-Z. Again, it's on Amazon. You can Google it. There's another good one. I believe it's called Overcoming Obsessive Thoughts. Don't quote me on that, but it's by David Clark and Christine Purden. Purden is P-U-R-D-O-N. Highly recommend those books. There's also some great memoirs about OCD out there. There's one called Triggered by Fletcher Wartman. There's a really good fictional story about um, a boy with OCD called O.C. Daniel by Wesley King. Uh, and if they're reading for pleasure, I would suggest uh, um, there's a really good book out there called The Wolf Wilder by Catherine Rundell, um, just about anything by Frederick Bachman. Um, and of course, I would recommend anything by Brad Warner if uh, if they're interested in, in Buddhism or just Buddhist commentary on a lot of different issues. And finally, finally, where can people find you on the web? Uh, yeah, so they can find me at www.theocdad.ca. So that's www.theocdad.ca. There's a contact form there that goes directly to my email. And I always tell people the book is one part of my conversation, but I'm also just open to anyone who wants to talk about mental health or OCD in general. If that means buying the book, then great. If that means talking to me directly, then that's great too. So that's the easiest and fastest way to reach me. And that's it. Jason Adams, OCD father of twins from Canada. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks so much. This was a fantastic conversation. Great to talk to you. All right. And I'll see you guys next time.
stop a second, cause I know you can taste it. Tell me what you wanna do, and then we're gonna make it a 